from 11FS. This is Fintech Insider News. Today, Banked raises $20 million Series A led by Bank of America for United States expansion. Farmer Fintechs are turning Europe's farms into carbon sinks. And JP Morgan opens its Metaverse Lounge. All this and more on today's news. Welcome to episode 604 of Fintech Insider. My name is Benjamin Ensor, and I'm joined on Fintech Insider News by my 11FS colleague, Tim Hurd, a manager in our client services group. Welcome, Tim. Great to have you. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you, Ben. I'm very well indeed. It's exciting to be back in the studio for the uh, first time in, in, in a while. And of course, as always, we're joined by some very special guests. So first up, making their Fintech Insider debut, we have Brad Goodall, CEO of Banked. Thank you so much for joining us today, Brad. We're going to get into your big news a little later, but can you give our listeners a brief introduction to, to you and to Banked? Yeah, thanks very much. Uh, really, you know, really excited to be here. Um, so yeah, Brad, um, I'm the CEO and one of the co-founders at Banked. Um, I'm originally from Australia. I've been in the UK for eight years now. I feel like I joined sort of right at the heart of when fintech was kind of kicking off. Um, Banked is a global account-to-account payments network, um, and we're setting out to make payments uh, faster, fairer, and more secure for both merchants and consumers. Um, and we've got a recent announcement about our fundraise um, uh, and uh, rapidly growing in 2022 will be a very big year for us. Fantastic. Looking forward to talking about it a bit more in just a, in just a couple of minutes. And also making their FinTech Insider debut, we have Julie Kochfala, co-founder of Agrina. Thank you again for joining us, Julie. Um, we've, again, we've got your news coming up too, but can you tell us a little bit about Agrina? Yeah, absolutely. So thank you for having me on the show. I'm very excited to be here. So very shortly, Agrina, we're a Danish startup based out of Denmark. We're working with farmers across the pan-European market. So what we have developed is a fir- one of the first international soil carbon certification programs. So essentially, we are tracking soil cultivation practices in order to mint and verify and sell carbon certificates generated by farmers who transition into regenerative agriculture. And then in the end, we help sell these on the voluntary carbon market and essentially providing a new income stream for the farmers. Fantastic. I'm looking forward to talking about that too. Okay, so let's get into the news. So what we'll do is we'll start with uh, the this banked story. So this was reported in TechCrunch and various other media, um, which is that Banked has raised $20 million in Series A, uh, led by Bank of America and Eden Red uh, for a US expansion. So Banked, which, as as Brad just told us, is a UK fintech, has announced the completion of its Series A funding round, led by Bank of America and Eden Red Capital Partners, with other investors, including Huey Lin, ex-PayPal. It's a fintech startup offering an alternative to the card schemes. Customers can pay without entering their financial data or creating an account. Instead, they choose their existing bank at checkout and are securely connected to their mobile banking app to biometrically authenticate purchases. The merchant receives the funds in real time, and bank claims its fees are up to 90% lower than established payment methods. The Series A brings a total investment raised to date to over $30 million, and the participation of new US-based investors supports the company's plans for US expansion. So, Brad, let's come to you first on this. So, congratulations. Super exciting. Um, How did a conversation about funding a UK payments fintech start with Bank of America? 
Yeah, look, we've been working with Bank of America for over 12 months. Um, and to start with, it was all about commercial. So so we went into this um through Bank of America doing some market scanning. Um, they've, they've they, you know, they're, they're quite an innovative payments business themselves um, and they're looking at new technologies and um, and essentially looking to provide services to their merchants um, that, you know, that, that you would be expecting a bank to kind of be investing in, you know, in 2022. Um, and so when we, when we first started talking to them, um, we were, I think initially what they were getting from a lot of people were that um, there was this thing called, you know, PSD2 in in Europe and the UK and um, and there was an aggregation play around that and the big opportunity was really about how many banks you could be connected into um, and that data was the was the thing that would start and that payments would then kick off after that. I think when we came to them, um, we gave them a different approach, which was um, very much focused on we're going to need to drive new experiences for the consumers. Mm. We're going to have to be able to deliver really fast integration for merchants. And fundamentally, we need to be able to look at the different account-to-account payment methods all around the world. So, obviously, there's, there's, um, you know, the UK has gone, um, has gone, you know, very well in creating a, in almost like a, a single standard for most of the banks, so that you can access faster payment rails here. Um, but there are lots of other real-time payment rails coming up around the world, and um, and and also, you know, with the advent of um, digital banking apps and providing consent to moving money, um, you know, those two things coupled um, has created a, a really interesting global footprint around account-to-account payments. And so, the whole conversation with respect to um, to funding was kicked off first around commercial, and and Bank of America did an assessment um, around, you know, was this a proposition that they wanted to um, wanted to commercially look at and and invest in from a business casing perspective. And then um, I think, you know, my background, I've always been around banks. I've never actually worked for a bank, but I've always been around banks. And I do believe that an edge that fintechs are going to have um, going forward is where, you know, fintechs that are able to partner with banks to do, I guess there's a Venn diagram around um, technology, consumer experience, and distribution. And I think those three things coming together, um, often the way to, that, to bring those three things together is by making sure that you know everyone's got skin in the game. And so we were always open to strategic investment um, from the outset. And so we were, you know, we were quite upfront um, that that you know if this was a proposition that Bank of America felt that they wanted to take forward um, commercially, but also you know just invest their time and you know the business case around it, um, then then we believe that there was a real opportunity to you know to to be part of our business and and what we're trying to build and and I think that that's um you know that's resulted in a in a in a really ex- exciting um outcome uh, and then look to be fair it's just the beginning you know we as I say you know we 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 believe in strategic investment we have a, a number of VCs as well so we obviously believe in VC investment too um, but I think the size and scale of the opportunity um, requires you know being able to to generate you know um, relationships with very big partners and and make sure that everyone's got skin in the game. So it's not a coincidence that you've got a big U.S. Uh, or a number of big U.S. investors to fund your expansion into into the states. Um, there's, there's something kind of compelling and magnetic about the states, isn't there? As a as a market, I mean, we see so many fintechs around the world, sort of trying to go into the states and trying to break into the states. Why why was that important for for banked? Um, I mean, obviously, it's a big market, but but why the states? I think I think one of the interesting things about um, about account-to-account payment rails um, or real-time payment rails, if you like, is that access to the rails, certainly here in the UK and, and in Europe, is extremely low, you know, in, in, in free in some respects. Um, the 
that means that the pressure is completely on the price um, if you're selling just simple access to those to those accounts. So if 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 the solution that you have is I'm going to sell you access to to banks, then what we're seeing you know play out in Europe is that the pressure on um, on being able to charge for for that access is 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 significant. And so, you know, the t- the typical kind of payment is is around, you know, if you compare it to say credit cards, you know, debit cards could be anywhere between, you know, 40 basis points and up and, and credit cards can be, you know, can be 90 and, you know, up to 150, 200, even if you include, you know, being going through third parties, um, you know, 10 basis points is around the the starting point for account to account payments from, from banks perspective. Um, and that's, you know, you need a, you need a very big market for that. That being said, the real way to to um, to charge for this is about adding value. So so how do you how do you kind of tap into um, why a customer is going to press the button um, to to pay via account to account payment, you know, or say with their mobile banking app versus um, versus with a card uh, or even in you know in a buy now pay later solution. So for us, you know, we had to have a global view first because the unit economics makes sense when it's a global view. Um, also, when you're selling services to to merchants, especially tier one merchants, um, they're not in one market. You know, they're in multiple markets. And so, if if it works well in one market, um, then they want to see it work um, work well in other markets, especially their home markets. And so, the US realistically was, I think, it's not going to be compliance driven. Like, it's not going to come to life the way the PSD two has kind of brought um, the the kind of open banking world to life here. Um, it's going to be uh, merchant driven, uh, and it's and, and you're going to need to interact with lots of different legacy systems as well as new systems that are coming online. Um, and so, I think what what I've sort of the, the way that we viewed this from the outset was going to be once we knew that the real target market was going to be tier ones and and trying to get access to to distribution partners to get access to those tier ones, we then very quickly realised that that the opportunity was going to be well. How might we take all of the knowledge and the work that we've done to incubate a product um, and a set of partnerships and learnings over here in in Europe um, into the states as they start to really take hold of of account to account payments and start to kick off, and and so I think you know if I knew everything that I know now, um, and you know and had that say four years ago when when this all started here in the UK, you know I I think I would I would have done. You know, I would, I would. There's lots of mistakes I've made. There's lots of learnings that I've had, um, and and I think that, um, I think that what what we recognise is that taking that into the US as a market, where you're going to have very big merchants um, that are going to give you access to very for, to a lot of flow, um, as this starts to to really take hold. You know, I think you want to be one of the first ones out there. You know, kind of leading the pack or, or being involved in the starting pack. And so that was it. Was it was always a it was always a goal from day one, um, knowing that, you know, we really. Getting access to the rails is one thing, um, but that value layer about why a customer is going to press a button and why a, and, and how a merchant can make account-to-account payments, uh, you know, effective and efficient in their business. That's the thing that I think that we've we've really focused on and done well. And I think that 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 then translates into many different markets. I was just going to say, well, I think that um, the advantage of having a corporate venture capital unit um, with Bank of America, rather than perhaps a purely a, a traditional VC, um, one of the advantages there comes with the fact they can help you navigate what can be quite a lot of complexity um, 
on the US side, right, because of the, the different laws from state to state and so forth. Um, I know that historically that has been a blocker to, to some entering the, the US market. Um, and I think, you know, my background's in, in corporate venturing, right? And I think one of the, the advantages we see is that if you partner with uh, a bank's VC unit versus, you know, a traditional VC, is that you get all that know-how and expertise and already have the kind of technology and footfall on the ground to, to, to work with, right? Um, one question I was going to ask, though, is, is through that discussion with Bank of America, um, you know, one of the things when I, I talk to fintechs about this is they say that sometimes the, the banks are using a, a different language sometimes. Sometimes early on when it comes to establishing the, the partnership agreement or are coming at it from a, a different cultural perspective. Um, I don't know if you encountered any of those issues early on and, and, and how you resolve them. Uh, look, I think, you know, one thing I would say about um, about the work that we've done with Bank of America is I've been so impressed at one at the speed I think that they went. Um, I think I've been really impressed at the humility of the team um, and and the fact that they, you know, they have a team you know, here in, in the UK, um, they also obviously have teams in the US and we interact with, with, with all of them. Um, I think that there's a real, um, there's, there's been a real focus in bringing a product to life that doesn't kill a fintech and that that's all the way right through even their investing. And I think that that's, that's super important, um, especially as you're dealing with, you know, a, 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 such a massive organization. And it's not just, you know, I think it's particular with, with, with respect to financial services. And certainly that's my my background. But I think it's any corporate interacting with a with a small a small entity, you know, needs to be careful of that. But I think that was, you know, that was you could tell that that was clear in their in their sort of in their makeup of this um, of this project from from the outset. I do think that um, that one of the things that you you have to be mindful of. I think on the fintech side is that that there's just you, you just have to understand that people people don't like they don't wake up in the morning at a bank and go I just want to go as slow as I possibly can. You know, <laughs> I just want to create the worst customer experience I can create. Like that that's that doesn't happen. Those people just aren't, you know, you know, like I'm sure there are people potentially but but you know, I've never really come across come across anybody, you know, in 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 times that I've interacted with banks. And so what you then just have to do is pay respect to the process of such a massive organization and all of the compliance that sits around that, all the regulation that they interact with. The fact that often banks don't want to be on the front page of the paper for good or bad, um, because people still have short memories of, you know, or long memories about bad and, and will bring those things up. And so anytime a bank, in my view, is is kind of trying to do something innovative um, and, you know, and is wanting to learn from the process and as well as um, as well as put effort into into getting something live. Uh, I think if you can harness it and have the respect for all of the things that come with it, procurement, information security, risk, compliance, um, you know, legal sign-offs of press releases, any of that sort of stuff. If, if you can go in with a view of being respectful, um, then I think you go you go a long way. And and that's that's definitely been my experience. Um, not just not just with Bank Mary, I've, you know, I've dealt with other banks before, but certainly in this particular case, I've been really impressed. Fantastic. Well, congratulations again, Brad. Super exciting. And we're going to keep watching and see how you uh, try and crack that Visa MasterCard sort of duopoly and, and bring down transaction fees. Um, so let's crack on to our next story and uh, bring, bring, bring Julian. Um, so our second story is that pharma fintechs are turning Europe's farms into carbon sinks. Uh, this was reported in Sifted and various other media across Europe. So Copenhagen's Agrina has raised $22 million in Series A for a platform where farmers can earn carbon credits for turning their land into carbon sinks. 
Those credits can be sold on voluntary carbon markets, where companies rather than countries buy credits to offset their emissions. The credits give farmers on average a 20% boost on the profitability per hectare of their land. Uh, the round was led by, I'm going to get this wrong, Kinovic, alongside Giant Ventures and Vexfonden, the Danish state's investment vehicle. Julia's laughing at me. I'm <laughs> very well that. pronounced, I'd say. <laughs> I can just help and say Kinovic and Vexfonden. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and so uh, you launched in 2020 and raised a seed round in October 2021. So so congratulations. Thank you so much for joining us uh, to discuss the funding. Um, for members of the audience or, or listeners who are not familiar, can you explain a little bit more about carbon sinks and carbon credits and how those work? Yeah, absolutely. It's not it's not necessarily common knowledge. Um, but to start off really from the starting point, so the agricultural space is responsible for approximately a fourth of all greenhouse gas emissions. And the same space that represents these emissions are actually representing the, um, the opportunity to reduce emissions and also remove and sequester carbon out of the atmosphere and to start utilizing our soils as carbon sinks. So this really, in order to do this, it requires that farmers start transitioning into what is called regenerative practices. And to try and put it very simple, um, farmers need to have green fields year round. So never inverse the soil, essentially, so we can have a healthy photosynthesis year round and really building up our carbon stocks of our soils, because essentially that is our carbon sinks, or at least the potential carbon sinks. So our solution here, and what we're trying to do is by using science and data and third party validation, we're tracking the transition of the farmers and we're quantifying the actual DHG reductions and removals. And then in order, we do that in order to really issue the carbon credits or carbon certificates out in the end. So these carbon credits or certificates are traded on the voluntary carbon market to corporates that are looking to offset their residual emissions, typically to be used for, for carbon accounting. So just a, just a quick clarification, when you said uh, the farmers need to sort of keep the farms green all year, do you mean so that they, they need to keep keep planting, uh, keep grass or whatever growing there and not sort of plough the fields over and just leave the sort of bare, bare ground? Is it as simple as just growing yeah, grass all year on. or is there more to it than that? Uh, well, unfortunately, if it just were that simple, <laughs> right, but then we wouldn't have any food on the table. So somehow we need to still have them growing their grains um, in the harvesting season. But you can say off harvest, then typically you would see brown fields because there's just no uh, incentive for having any uh, grasses, as you say. So there's there's different ways of, of utilizing grasses throughout the, during the winter, but essentially that's it. So having what we're calling cover crops, throughout the off harvest season and then not stop using the plow altogether. And that's really tricky because farmers love their plows. Farmers are proud of their plows <laughs> and they have been plowing for hundreds of years. So it's it's a big change for them, um, not only from a you know knowledge and, and mindset perspective, but also they have to go out and invest in new machinery and so it's, it is a big change and it requires an, an incentive for farmers to take up this transition at scale. And that's what we're trying to do with creating these new financial services and, and new revenue streams in order to really get this going. And did you say you were working with farmers sort of across Europe? Was that right? Yeah, exactly. So here in our initial year, we've had farmers from across eight markets. So 
just over 150 farmers in this first year. And how do you manage the um, how do you manage the sort of carbon offsetting, right? Because I, I mean, I'm a huge fan of sort of environmental movements and so on, but but measuring it properly and really checking that you are you're truly offsetting carbon and that um, this is truly making a difference is is really hard. So how how are you how are you managing that? Because it sounds wonderful in principle, but I'm <laughs> yeah. sure you I'm sure you get I'm sure you encounter skepticism. How, how do you how, how do you demonstrate that it's really actually making a difference? Yeah, well, it's a head on the nail here because I think it's important to just start off by, by saying so the carbon removal sector has really been grown out of innovation in an unregulated market and it's about to get more standardized and we're really welcoming on that standardization. But I think to try and get back on your question, there's really two sides of this. So one is I think it's uh, really important to ensure that, of course, our quantifications and our model and our protocols are based on science-based targets. This is really where the industry is headed and where this standardization is going towards. And then also on the other side, in another aspect of ensuring integrity and avoiding offsets being used as an alternative to decarbonization. So essentially what we're doing uh, to avoid that is through our buyer screening policy. So really trying to ensure that the buyers of our carbon credits um, are using them and claiming them to offset only the unavoidable and transitional emissions only. Um, but this really is where I think governmental involvement or at least in a lightweight form, some regulation to support the frameworks of this will only be helpful. I think that's really going in the next couple of years. We will see that transforming into a more, if not regulated, then at least a standardized market where there will be a healthy place for private enterprises and the BCM to really continue to innovate and to be part of the solution, but in a safe, uh, safe place, if you will, knowing what we're doing. It's funny how often we hear traditional financial institutions complaining about regulation and saying regulation is the reason they can't do things. And yet, yeah. surprisingly, often fintechs are saying, no, we need more regulation, we need better regulation. But I think there's just a fine balance between, you know, the, the rigid and, and hardcore regulation and then setting up some, having a healthy approach really towards regulation and, and setting up some guidelines that uh, nurture innovation and expansion instead of hindering it. But it's, it is a fine balance. And I think it's, it's difficult and it will take some time to really find its place. But we have started that, that journey in, in this industry already. And I think it's, um, you know, it's important to note that the, the regulation in this space is a step change um, on some levels because, you know, we've had uh, non-enforceable guidelines such as the sustainable development goals um, previously which you know are, are fantastic in essence but without the the regulatory clout behind them you know become quite hard for uh, organizations to, to deliver against because it doesn't create that sense of urgency and priority um, and you said something quite quite interesting um, which which I, I, I picked up about how um, you know you're looking to uh, incentivize uh, farmers to change their behavior. And I think that's really, that's really powerful because, um, you know, it shows the, the power of finance as something that is, is ubiquitous around the world to, to really drive social change and really impact the world positively. It just needs 
to be framed and delivered in certain ways that enable people to change their behaviors. And I think the will is there, um, not just for individual consumers, but also for, for corporations to really establish the balance between doing well and doing good. But I think, you know, we need a lot more agreeners to be able to facilitate that transition because people aren't necessarily understanding how to change. They know they need to, they know they want to, they know it's kind of a license to trade now, but they can't necessarily see the way forward. Yeah, exactly. I agree with you. And I think really it's it's going to be either, you can say it's the stick of the carrot, right? So financial incentives or regulations, hardcore. I think there'll definitely be a mix of the two. That's what we're trying to develop the path towards. But I think, especially when looking at agriculture, it is one of the heavy, most heavy sort of credited industries and subsidized and, and in that way regulated industries. So I think there's a really big opportunity here for, for utilizing some financial um, innovation and sophisticated technology to try and drive this change rather than just putting down a new regulation and, and subsidies on it. What do you make of this, Brad? Um, I, I know you don't live in Australia anymore, but obviously Australia is huge. There's an awful lot of farms there. Could you, could you see Australian farmers starting to, to do things like this? Do you think there'd, there'd be much interest out there? Do you know, it's it's one of the things that I think in Australia, like uh, you know, I left Australia. One of the reasons I left was we didn't have much of a VC scene. There is a there is a, um, a, a sort of a thriving VC scene now. But I've always hoped that Australia would would be like this hotbed for, um, uh, you know, for, for, for innovation around being a sandbox in this particular area. Like this is where Australia should be should be opening their arms and really saying, "Look, we'll incentivize you. We'll we'll give you grant funding. Um, we'll we'll get farmers on side." Um, because I think, you know, Australia is one of those kind of microcosms of being able to, you know, get regulation change reasonably quickly. It doesn't have complexities, you know, as you would say in Europe, um, and you know, and bluntly agriculture and and resources are you know the the biggest thing that that you know that we've got um you know coming you know coming out of the country and and um and fueling growth and so on so yeah i, I mean I guess I'm hopeful. I think I think it's 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 definitely the sort of thing that the, that the government should be getting behind. And I know that there are a number of people that um, and, and tech people as well that that really try to encourage a lot of the innovation um, in this, in, especially in agriculture, around trying to be this kind of sandbox for you know for testing this out and even testing regulation regulatory change around it, so that that can then be um, you know de- demonstrated to other countries and and hopefully reciprocated. That would, be, that would be great to see. So last quick question on this story then, uh, uh, Julie, what are, you, what are you going to do with the funding that you've raised? What's what's your plan? Well, of course, with the new funding, we're really going to ramp up our ambition. So we're going to go for a, an even larger expansion. Um, and then naturally, we're going to further develop and and sophisticate our protocols, our methodologies, our, our technologies all together to ensure that we're, we're following the, the newest uh, standards and science available. But then one of the, the really big endeavors for Greener in the coming year is to expand our technology stack in order to really um, utilize our marketplace and, and serve some new financial services for the farmers without saying too much at this point. Because <laughs> <laughs> you've got competitors out there, right? <laughs> okay, well, well, fantastic. Congratulations again, Julie. Super, super exciting. And I'm, I'm personally really hopeful that, that, that this is a success. Okay, so we're just going to take a quick pause here while you hear from our sponsors, and we'll be back very shortly. 
Decoding is back. Our hit video series returns, and this time we're getting under the skin of banks. Over the course of 11 episodes, we're joined by key industry experts to ask, what are the challenges facing traditional banks in 2022? From payment rails to lending, we lay out the landscape before looking at the problems banks are facing today and what they can do about them. Watch now on the 11FS YouTube channel or at 11FS.com forward slash decoding. Welcome back. Let's get into our next story. So Primer co-founder has hit out at brazen copying in fintech. This story was reported in AltFi and various other places. So Paul Anthony, co-founder of payment automation platform Primer, has hit out at the brazen copying of ideas in fintech. In a blog post, Anthony writes about his experiences since he co-founded the firm with former ex-PayPal and Braintree employee Gabriel LaRue in early 2020. Anthony writes that a dozen clones appeared in the months after Primer was founded. Um, And he said, if you come up with a great idea, it must get copied. But even we were surprised at just how brazen this was. One company even copy-pasted our website, including the Notion site we used to advertise roles. The part few talk about, though, is the toll it can take to see your team's ideas ripped off time and again. The simple wording you spent hours thinking up replicated wholesale, even down to the product names you debated over and ran polls to decide on. And just for a bit of context, in October last year, Primer uh, closed a $50 million Series B fundraise, pushing its valuation up to about $425 million. So what do we think about this? Does, does fintech have a copying problem? I think I have a view, but um, what, what, what do you guys reckon? Have you seen copying? Do you think there's a big problem here? Yeah, I, I don't want to be too harsh here, but I'm not really sure that fintech as such has a copying problem. This this doesn't relate only to fintech. I think it's just, if, you know, think of companies like Rocket Internet. They are built to copy at scale. So I think most tech startups, contradictory as it might sound, we don't run on patented technology, not even proprietary technology at all times. So we also live in a world where I think there's startups popping out every second. So the chance of more releasing the same idea, using the same terms, is just really, really high. And to just be really blunt, there might even be an advantage in fintech around this because there's a higher level of regulation and banking and financial services. So the, the barriers are a bit higher, I would say, in this industry, but I'm not sure. I'm not even sure what the difference would be between a, a similar solution to a problem and then a, a rip-off or copy. I think I think the difference is the difference is you've you know in your business, right? There's other businesses that do some vaguely similar things to you, but that's a bit different to somebody copying your website and copying <laughs> your wording and co- you know, there's a difference between There's a line. Yeah, there's a line between a similar idea pursued by other passionate people and someone copying what you're doing, right? Now, we're starting to get into moral and ethics here, then are you really allowed to copy my website? But I think it just, you know, in terms of what product you have out there, it needs to be the market that decides who wins. If not, I mean, who else should do it? Should there be a regulation on no one can start a similar product to mine? I think there's there's a broader question in my mind here around whether is copying a problem within fintech in the sense that is it potentially a good thing uh, up to a point for for the end consumer to have this level of of competition and secondly you know uh, is it more that the speed of of new entrants that's causing the problem um you know 
would the example, you know, Barclays, Lloyds and RBS have been delighted when Monzo came along? Probably not. Would they have said they were copying what they were doing? Maybe, but it just took a lot longer to do it. And is this just a, a symptom of uh, a dynamic market? I'm not condoning people copy and paste other people's websites, but I think isn't there the, the whole thing around imitation is the greatest form of flattery? <laughs> um, you know, is, isn't this just part of a dynamic market? I think the... Um I, I, yeah, I, I, I like the consumer angle. I think that's right. I think you know consumers win from this. You know, there's lots of there's lots of um, I don't know for want of a better term fintech apps that that have basically driven up the user experience, and and then banks have have now you know I don't think our Barclays like, I don't think a Barclays app today is as 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 good if if Monzo, Revolut, Starling hadn't come on the scene and and really pushed pushed the barriers right. So I think I think that I think in that particular example. I think the thing maybe to dig in here a little bit more though is that so I, I agree that copying websites, copying notion pages, like I think there's yeah, there's a thing that in my own view, there's a thing um there's a thing about about that. But what I would say is Primer in particular, they're one of the hottest orchestration companies um, going around if you if you look at it from the VC scene. Um, they raised really quick money. Um, they were very early on. They've got an amazing team. Um, and they had a playbook um, which got them, you know, some tier one VCs. Um, and they did things in a certain way that really generated um, buzz and spotlight. And then they've been executing. So I wouldn't I definitely wouldn't take that away from them. They 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 have been executing. But that playbook to raise money in a world in the last 24 months, you know, 12 months, say, you know, in particular, um, is th- those VCs, they, they want to deploy capital. VCs out there want to deploy capital. And certain VCs, they pattern recognize and they, they look for playbooks and those things will. And I think when people see a successful um, fintech raise money in that way, you know, it's a short way to, to raising more money. Um, and I'm not saying, you know, I'm not taking anything away from shining a light on that, that, you know, VCs are, you know, can be just hoodwinked. Um, but I do think in this particular case, um, you know, Primo last year, I think would have probably been considered one of the, you know, one of the hottest fintechs coming, coming out purely around their fundraise, less around, you know, anything that they were doing because that just because they were so early on. Um, but I can see how, um, I can see how it's frustrating for them for sure. But I can also see a world in which, um, in some respects, capital deployment through venture capital um, almost encourages this type of behaviour because they're looking for those types of patterns and they're looking for they're looking for some of the things that work and some of the things that that just make you look hot in those very early days before you know you've got product market fit necessarily. Um, yeah. So in a sense, you're saying it's it's really the, it's the VCs that are, that are to blame because they're they're funding these 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 copycats. Julie, I was interested. You know, you mentioned Rocket Internet. Um, you know, you're saying that really that the problem is that people who are copying are getting rewarded, um, even though actually these these firms you know haven't had the ideas, they haven't done the hard work, they've just literally copied the idea. Because you know, I think there's a big difference between seeing a company doing something super interesting in, let's say, Poland, and saying, okay, let's take that idea and let's apply it to Argentina. Totally different context, but the core idea will take that core idea and build a different version of it. That's totally different to literally ripping off an idea and trying to launch it in the same markets with the same websites, right? But I, I think it just, you know, in, in, in full honesty, we have to say that an idea in itself is not worth much. So it really comes down to how you implement it and, and how you 
take it to market. So I think if I saw a, a company that I felt like didn't do well enough and I then started the same type of startup or the same kind of company, but I felt like I was doing it a bit better because I, I bridged the gap somewhere where I find, found gaps as a consumer myself, then that would be a copying, but it would be because I saw the need for that new and better version, right? So I, I don't think that you can just copy an idea and then make a website and then say that, I mean, then, then there wasn't a big innovation in the beginning, I would maybe say. I, I mean, I guess the, the, the VCs who invest in some of these copycat businesses are likely to end up losing out because they've invested in a shell, not the real thing. Um, so I guess it all comes down to execution yeah. at the end of the day. So, you know, um, you know, where, any successful business, not just fintech, um, but is, is, is obviously going to have a, a target on its back because people are going to look for ways in which they can do the things that that business did well and maybe get an edge on them to get out in front. So, so you're going to have a target on your back. And so you're going to be frustrated when people take a shortcut and, and copy your original ideas, if that's, if that's in fact what's happened. Um, I, I just think we've been in a funny cycle where um, people have been, you know, and I think it may be mentioned in, um, in the blog um, was that, you know, we're looking for the, you know, the, 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 the next primer or the primer of this. Um, and, you know, that used to be the Uber of this or the Revolut of this or the, you know, whatever. Um, and, and I think that, um, I think, yeah, look, I think that end of the day, like the, in that very early stage when you're investing, um, you're looking at a team um, first and foremost. And the idea, yeah, look, let's just see, you know, whether that idea works or not, it's all going to come down to execution. And, and, and I think if people take shortcuts, yeah, I think it's definitely frustrating, but fundamentally you've got to build a sustainable business, a long-term business, and that's going to be more than just, you know, maybe some of the things that, that get mentioned that can be copied. I think there's a DNA in the business that you're going to have to create. So, um, yeah. So I think what you're both saying, Julian Brad, is if, if this happened to your companies, you'd be frustrated, annoyed, but ultimately believe that your execution was going to get you through and that these, these copycats would, would fall by the wayside, I think. I try, yeah, I try not to look at, I try to look at competition <laughs> from the perspective of, I, I look at competition from the perspective of, you know, am I, you know, how am I going in, you know, I try, yeah, I, I try to look at it. Well, I guess I try to look at it in the rear view mirror, right? So I, I you know, I think that, um, I think that it's, it's one of those things of, yeah, you'll, you'll, you'll be frustrated, but fundamentally you just got to focus on execution. And so that's on you. Um, and I think as a founder, you've, you know, you've got to take that on your shoulders and, and the rest of it's all just noise. You should be just, you just be completely, you know, focused on the execution side. Yeah, and I think there even be some some positives to see in competition here. Both, you know, sure. from our point of view at Agrina, at least, there's the we have to teach an, a market about a completely new business model and a new market for them. So the fact that there's more companies like ours popping up is essentially only helping us get the word across. So to some extent, it's a help. Of course, we don't want too many, or at least as Brad suggests, we want to look at them behind us. Um, but also just in terms of regulation or just maturing the market altogether, it is good to not be the only ones out there. Typically, if you're the only one out there in our market, it suggests that you're doing something wrong also. Fantastic. That's really good, good advice for other founders out there. 
Right, let's move on to our, uh, the last of our, our, our four stories. Um, so this one comes from the, the Guardian in, in the UK, which is that four buy now, pay later firms have changed their potentially unfair terms. So um, the four buy now, pay later companies, ClearPay, Klarna, LayBuy and OpenPay have agreed to change potentially unfair and unclear terms and conditions after an intervention from the UK's Financial Conduct Authority. The companies were made to change their contract terms on cancellations and continuous payment authority to make them fairer and easier to understand, according to the FCA. ClearPay, LayBuy and OpenPay also agreed to refund some late payment fees they had wrongly charged after customers had cancelled orders. The Financial Conduct Authority said it was able to use consumer law to enforce the changes. However, the regulator acknowledged it was still lacking the powers to regulate the sector to the same standard as other consumer credit companies. The government is considering bringing in, the UK government, is considering bringing in new rules for the sector, but has yet to detail what action it will take. Um, Tim, what did you make of this? It's This is not a new problem. Uh, it's also not a new regulation. No, exactly right. I think um, there is a, a potential here for... Uh, buy now, pay later providers to be almost uh, payday lenders in disguise, you know, in, in some ways because of the the way that they operate um, and the fact that people can take perhaps more than they can afford or just because it's kind of glitzy at the front end and it sounds cool and you don't really understand quite what you're getting into. So I think quite rightly the FCA has stepped in to make that a little bit clearer for the individual signing up to it to know fundamentally what they're signing up to because when you see the 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 process flow through the buying journey for the individual you know i've experienced this myself where you go through and it's like oh maybe you want to split this into three payments you're like that sounds cool and then you go for it <laughs> you don't actually think too much about the terms and conditions and that's why it's quite it's almost kind of sexy and quite cool to have this at the front end but without the the real understanding and the the regulatory incentive to actually have a degree of clarity around what people are signing up to you know you you kind of set people up for for failure right Indeed, indeed. It's been interesting. We've seen regulators in a couple of other countries like Australia and so on looking quite hard at this and, and really digging into what, what's going wrong. Um, Julie, Brad, I'm, I'm curious whether what, what you think of and whether you've seen uh, other countries maybe taking a better approach than the UK? Or, um, no, I think just to follow along the lines of what was just said, that I think um, we, are, we are operating in a very complex and convoluted world here, but it, it's important to not put simplicity in as a replacement or a substitute for transparency and integrity for the consumers because it's so easy as a consumer to just fall in in the, in the hands of these two simple offers essentially um, and transparency doesn't necessarily need to be complex for consumers uh, we just want honest and forthright information but we don't want to read through 300 pages of t's and c's so i understand the complexity in it it's just really important that simplicity doesn't stand in the way of transparency. I've I've done some research here at 11FS. We, we, we've done a couple of projects looking at buy now, pay later. And to Tim's point, it is not clear often. Um, obviously, different different companies are, have different standards, and I don't want to tar them all with the same brush. But um, there are certainly a number of pay, buy now, pay laters in various different markets around the world where it is far from obvious um, what the fees and the charges are. Um, and I, I do worry sometimes that there's an element of taking advantage of particularly younger consumers who are a little bit less savvy about debt and maybe don't understand what they're doing. Um, 
And it's interesting here, the FCA saying, well, we actually don't have the power. You know, we can use some existing laws, but we don't have the power to regulate. And there is this this sort of gap where buy now, pay later in some countries is sort of getting through in a gap in the regulation um, that allows certain forms of credit that are not regulated um, that was really intended for something else. I think one of the um, one of the complexities here is that the thing that buy now, pay later has really cottoned onto and, and has made you know, um, has, has put a lot of these businesses into this kind of hyper growth has been that actually car abandonment on online shopping um, is so significant. Like in 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 some areas, it can be more than 80% um, uh, in, in some verticals. And so, you know, it's funny when you think about um, uh, merchants have been like bashing down payment fees and they're desperate to get payment fees down. But then as a buy now, pay later company, you can come along and go, well, how would you like it if I charge you like, four times or five times what you'd pay in payment fees on, oh, by the way, I'd like your customer to become my customer. And then merchants go, why would I ever do that? And they go, cause I'll get your card abandonment down. And they go, yeah, okay, well, I'm in. And I think that that drive um, then does create a level of behavior, which is, you know, card abandonment is, is it's decision-making. And, and, and to be fair, some of it's not all just about credit, you know, like some people use buy now, pay later for, refunds and I want to buy three pairs of shoes, but I only one pair is going to fit and I need to be able to send the other two back. And I don't want to have to be out of pocket there. And so it's, it's not that I can't afford it. It's just that I don't want to have to pay, you know, 300 quid. I only want to pay 100 quid. And I think, I think that, that that's why there is a, there is, you do need to have some pretty solid um, focused advice and supervision actually in this area, because, you know, there is such an incentive um, on the other side, on the merchant side, for someone to be able to help them with getting their card abandonment down and getting more, more, you know, goods shipped. And so, um, yeah, I guess it's just it's it. Uh, I'm not saying that it's it's the necessary. I'm not saying that it's the merchant's fault. I'm saying actually the onus and the responsibility and accountability really is on the buy now pay later companies. And and it's not surprising to me that they do want to see more regulation in this space because yeah, I can see how you could get other companies that come into the space that just focus on maybe a little bit less transparency and speed and, and, and that type of thing to, uh, you know, to be able to then disrupt and then everyone gets hard with the same brush. And so that, and, and I, and I suppose one thing I'd end on is that I always think that this thing of this concept of like the, the new sort of payday loans businesses, I think we have to be a little bit careful with that because in some respects, payday loans were, that there were there were certain individuals that 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 needed payday loans to to be able to that 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 part of issuing the loan wasn't it was the predatory part you know of collections and you know and and I think some of this is less about you know people desperately needing to buy you know a pair of sneakers um you know and 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 being able to survive and and certainly and I've seen you ask about other countries I saw some stuff in Australia where they were you know I think it was a hospitality set of hospitality venues that was also going to introduce buy now pay later and I think that sort of stuff really is um you know that th- th- I have a real problem with that so my point being that I think you just have to be careful to to make sure that when we're looking at regulation and 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 even when we're looking at you know throwaway statements of like this is the new payday loans industry I think we just have to be a little bit. I think we have to think a little bit more about it because otherwise we'll we'll miss the fact that there is a there is a change in consumer behaviour here. There is a change in buyer behaviour, and trying to fight that won't won't work if you just tie it with a t- completely different brush. 
definitely. It's a, it's a great it's a great product. It's just a question of making sure that uh, cus- customers are protected. And I, and I should have said earlier that that Klarna and Laybuy are both saying we'd like to see better regulation. We'd like to see more regulation. So I, you know, I should, you're making a very good point. Um, they're bred about you know different companies, and you know there are some companies that are a bit more predatory than others. Um, there are some yeah some very some some good lenders that are trying to take a sensible approach here. Um, Tim, I see that your alma mater, Barclays, has also been calling for for, for more <laughs> and it's regulation. Coming, coming my way. Yeah, well, <laughs> <laughs> no comment. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Any any final thoughts on this on this story? I think there's there's a thought when I when I bring um, payday loans into it. It's it's not about the product being the same. It's more the the perception of you know the the almost under undersells the the fact or, or or slightly hides the fact that there is a line of credit being developed here. You know, it's kind of like, you know, it's like all free money. It's, it's almost the marketing and the packaging around both or the customer journey around either that creates that perception that, you know, there's almost, it's almost not a financial product or maybe that was just, just when I read it the first time, it was like, oh yeah, I can do that. I almost didn't realize or think through that there was a, you know, this is actually a financial product in the background. It was much more uh, akin to, oh, I need this. This sounds like, you know, this sounds like a cool thing. I'll go with that rather than really thinking through the financial consequences of it. So, yeah, I think there's a there's a clarity point is the consistency probably rather than the, the product. Did that make sense? <laughs> it, it does <laughs> make sense. And I think we're going to see a lot. Sorry, go ahead, Brad. I was just going to say, I think um, I think there's an interesting sort of, so buy now, pay later is there are going to be vulnerable individuals that are going to access that product in a similar way to maybe the way in which they may have accessed um, payday loans. And so there is a there is definitely a, a similarity in that sense. And so protecting vulnerable people, I think, is, is extreme. And there's a similar kind of alignment to if you think about like investing um, apps. And, um, and I think this is reasonably well known in that um, obviously when the pandemic hit and these investing apps went through the roof, some of that was just purely down to, you know, like people got more time on their hands. And so that, you know, they decided that that was a space that they were going to put, put some effort into. But some of it was also down to the fact that there were, there was no longer sports gambling happening at the time. And so people were then trying and moving across into a different area and, and they saw that saw something, you know, something similar. And I think it's, it's it's kind of the same type of thing is that you're going to get vulnerable people in 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 you know in both and so there's a there's a lot to be learned in the gambling space as there is in the investing space i think there's a lot to be learned in the buy now pay later, uh, in the payday loan space and that can be translated into the buy now pay later space when it comes to vulnerable people that's a that's a great great insight and a great point to to, to end end on Thank you, Brad. All right, let's move on to the part of the show where we quickly round up some of the stories, some of the other stories from the week that we don't have time to cover, um, but still deserve a quick shout out. Tim, do you want to get us started? Absolutely. Um, Revolut acquires Indian money transfer company Arvog Forex. I hope I pronounced that right. Uh, Revolut has acquired India-based money transfer company Arvog Forex as the British fintech giant plans to launch its cross-border products for local users in the second half of 2022. The London-based Neobank is also open to further acquisitions in the Indian fintech segment as it plans to obtain a digital banking license. Arvog, which has around 15,000 customers, provides services including currency exchange, cross-border remittances and multi-currency cards. Revolu entered the Indian market in April 2021, where it plans to launch bespoke financial products, many of which would be new to the country. Now, my understanding on Indian banking licenses, they're quite hard to get unless you're domiciled 
in India. So I wonder if part of this is is uh, to build their credibility, reputation, and footprint in India as a precursor to getting the uh, the banking license itself. So I think that's one to watch. That makes sense. If you'd like to hear more about payments in emerging markets, do check out episode 599 of Fintech Insider Insights, which looks at the payment markets across India, Africa, and the Middle East with uh, some great guests as usual. Next up, BBVA invests $300 million in Brazil's Neon. So BBVA is investing in Neon, bringing the Spanish lender's stake in the Brazilian digital bank to just under 30%. Founded in 2016, Neon launched with a simple digital account and has since expanded its product range to include investments, credit cards, and personal loans, among other new offerings and features. The company has 15 million registered accounts, making it one of several fintech giants, alongside firms like Newbank, eBank, C6, and Credit Creditas, um, blossoming in uh, Latin America's biggest country. For BBVA, the deal is part of a strategy to invest in digital lenders around the world, including firms like Atom Bank in the UK and Germany's Solaris Bank. Um, yeah, I'm not surprised. To me, BBVA was pretty much the first established financial services firm to really understand digital. Um, they've invested in a numerous um, fintechs around the world over the past few years. Makes a lot of sense. Brazil, you know, fast-growing country, fast-growing fintech market. Um, I'm not, not surprised by this, this at all. Um, if you want to hear more about the booming uh, Latin American fintech market, uh, come and check out episode 603 of Fintech Insider Insights, which uh, we had Nubank on the show and various others talking about what's going on in Latin America. Tim, back to you. Sustainable finance app Novus raises $5 million in nine months and is now officially live. Uh, societal impact app Novus has begun onboarding customers in the UK after closing a 3 million crowd fund. With Novus, every time a user taps their card, real-time impact points are donated to various environmental and social causes uh, as funding meals and cleaning the ocean. Customers can then follow their impact to see just how much of a difference they are making, as well as track and offset their carbon footprint based on their card activity. The firm, which relies on technology um, from RailsBank for its core infrastructure, has added 150 sustainable brands to its in-app marketplace and is now live on both the App Store and Google Play. Nova successfully beat its initial target of $1.2 million by over 250%. Now, I love Novus, um, partly because I uh, kind of proposed a similar idea a long time ago uh, when I was working for a bank, um, and it didn't quite go off the ground. But one of the, the key things we found was that customers were really wanting to see uh, proximity to the impact they were creating and also trying to see um, almost a per-transaction feel of doing good. And actually, quite a lot of the solutions in the market weren't really really providing that feel. So Novus have really hit something and managed to crack it through their, through their user journey. So uh, one I'm excited about and uh, one to watch. Indeed. Okay, let's bring everybody back uh, for the final story of the week. JP Morgan is the first bank into the metaverse. Um, it says it's become the first lender to arrive in the metaverse. The bank opened its Onyx Lounge in blockchain-based Decentraland to coincide with the publication of a paper on the opportunities presented by the metaverse. JP Morgan's paper suggests that the opportunities presented by interactive digital worlds seem limitless. Its lounge is complete with a roaming tiger, as well as a portrait of CEO Jamie Dimon on the wall. Um, Decentraland has also seen a new virtual store from Samsung, which is a replication of its New York location. Um, before that, Barbados made a version of its embassy within the metaverse, um, according to the report. Um, is this a fad? 
or is this the future? I, I feel like I've seen this seen this movie before with Second Life and various other metaverses. But um, what do you all reckon? <laughs> I just like the tiger. <laughs> I'm just in it for the tiger. I'm still trying to get my head around this metaverse in, in full transparency. But I think to, in, to try and be all serious about it, it just because it didn't work um, back in the days in, in 2006 or when Second Life was in, doesn't mean that it won't work going forward. I think we are, from a financial service point of view, we're just in a completely different state today. So, I mean, back then there was no virtual payments. Now everything we do on a hourly basis almost are virtual payments. And so I, I keep coming back to the thought of, of Farmville when thinking, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but really it's, it's interesting because that was the first time that virtual goods had a meaning and, and sort of we were all starting to buy digital assets. Back then, though, digital assets were just copied, so there was no real value to it. So that's that's the big change that I see it today, or it could be the potential big game changer that NFTs here cannot be copied. So there can actually be an actual value in the assets or transactions that will happen on the metaverse. So to stay on this this serious note, Julie, uh, what office <laughs> pet would you want in the in the metaverse? <laughs> A, a unicorn mixed with oh, a T-Rex, yeah. I think. Good shout. <laughs> Brad? I guess I have to say a kangaroo, right? Like that's, uh, that's <laughs> if, for no, if for no other reason than to see it make friends with a tiger, I suppose. And, and a T-Rex. They're, they're good friends. Definitely good friends. I can see it happening. Yeah. I just don't, I mean, in general, I just don't see the, well, I, the, the, these are going to be the kind of things that I'll say in like five years, people will play this back to me, but I don't see the point. <laughs> like, you know, we've closed down branches and so forth, like physical branches, you know, because people didn't have the time to to go to them as such. You know, do you, I mean, do you go to the, the the metaverse branch and then have to wait in a digital queue behind other digital people to get to the counter? Like, what? Well, I don't, I, don't, I just don't, I just find it really confusing. I mean, if there was a tiger, maybe, but, you know, yeah, confusing. <laughs> I think it makes I think it's, it makes sense to figure out what's going on in there and how to how to, how to be relevant. Um, but yeah, it's definitely a, it's definitely an interesting community building exercise. Like I think if you're if you and and that and that and therein lies potentially the problem is that you, you need it to be extremely open and you need to control you, you need to not control all of the things that go in there. And I think that's that would be my view of why it might be difficult for this to, to 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 really take shape and take hold is that the types of you know processes and policies and things you'd probably want to try and put around it if you were a bank might be the thing that stop it from being the you know the 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 sort of second coming of the new bank branch or whatever you know whatever it's supposed to be um certainly the the types of things that i've seen you know starting to take shape in in different metaverses are the ones where the communities are very open and there's a there's kind of like they're, they're allowed to kind of build their own set of rules and laws um and, and i and i so i'm i'm definitely interested to watch the space i think it's i think it's cool that they're dipping their toe in the water as you say i mean it's not the first time it's been done um so it's just you know it, it, it's it's yeah it's what jp morgan does i think yeah let's watch the space all right well that wraps up this uh week's new show so thank you so much to today's guests um you know brad and julie i wish your company's every success super exciting news um from both of you where can people find out a, a bit more about you so let's start with uh, julie 
Well, to start off, go to agrina.com. <laughs> but then, of course, connect on, on LinkedIn. My name is Julie K. Fowler. And Brad? Yeah, bank.com. Um, and yeah, the same. I'm Brad Goodall at LinkedIn. I'm always super um, keen to connect with as many founders and, um, and folks in the fintech um, industry that are building stuff. So, um, so yeah, please reach out. Tim, how can people find out more about you? Same. LinkedIn, Tim Hurd, um, with an E-A-R-D, because people get that wrong a lot. Um, uh, anything people want to talk about, corporate venture and sustainability, sustainable finance, yeah, love to talk about that stuff. So, yeah, hit me up. And as for me, Benjamin Ensor, I'm on LinkedIn or on 11fs.com. And thank you for listening. Um, please join the conversation on social media or email podcast at 11fs.com. Thank you very much indeed, and goodbye. Goodbye.